And now I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Joe Matthews. Joe Matthews is the author of The People's Machine, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Rise of Blockbuster Democracy, and co-author of California Crack Up. He is Sokolo's California editor and writes our weekly Connecting California column, which appears in 26 newspapers around the state. He is also co-president of the Global Forum on Modern Direct Democracy. Please give a very, very warm welcome to Joe Matthews. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks to this panel. I have to open with two apologies. Once for my uh, somewhat scratchy voice. It is that kind of time of year. I'm uh, going to apologize for the hat. Well, you know, it's <laughs> Jim Mora, who is a friend of Zocalo, said this week that uh, that UCLA owns LA now. So I was just trying to fit in. Um, They're just renting it for a year. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then an apology from uh, one of our panelists who could not be here t uh, tonight, Paul Mitchell. I uh, had a sort of comedy of errors in the Oakland airport and never quite got out of it this afternoon. Um, but he uh, graciously sent along two, the, the two big data points um, that he prepared for all of you. And I thought they were worth um, reciting. Uh, Paul is a political dad and a, a big data guy. And he said, and the, the two points are that, um, and how seriously uh, unrepresentative the electorate is in, in LA, this very small electorate, that we essentially have a 33-year lag demographically. We're basically 33, in, in, in the composition of our electorate, we're 33 years behind um, the composition of our population. Well, the, the voter turnout in 2013 was a little less than 25% Latino, which was the percentage of the, this, what the city was um, in the census way back in 1980, so 33 years. Um, now the city is roughly 50% Latino. The, his projections are um, that you know with this 33-year lag, um, the the population of the day won't be represented in the electorate until the year 2046, which, as it turns out, is the year that um, Kim Kardashian becomes eligible for Social Security. <laughs> um, his other um, number worth reciting is he asked if what if only landowners in LA could vote. Um, how would that look compared to the current vote voting population? Actually, the landowners are more representative of the city than the voting population. The voting population this last time was 24% Latino, 8% Asian, with a median age of 61. The reg uh, registered voters who are landowners in LA City are 27% Latino, 10% Asian, uh, Asian with a median age of uh, 52. Um, insert your you know, Jim Crow reference there. Um, so anyway, um, uh, regrets from Paul, and, and thanks for those of, for everyone who is here. Um, you know, to, to frame this up, uh, Eric Garcetti was elected mayor uh, this year with the votes of about 222,000 Angelinos, less than six percent of the population, fewer than one in eight of its registered voters. The last time a mayor was elected uh, with such few votes was in the 30s, when LA was half the size of its today. Um, now we're going to talk about. A lot of different questions tonight, um, but this sort of question of why people vote, why they don't vote, um, there are so many threads. There's actually quite a bit of um, uh, academic contest and controversy in the research about this. Um, but I think I, I found in this reading and preparing for it to sort of think of there are four different kinds of uh, ideas, uh, factors um, that go into voting. One is demographic. Um, you may hear about age, gender, race, marital status, education, income, home ownership. Um, second is attitudinal and behavior. Your access to political information, knowledge of candidates and issues, church attendance, trust, altruism, your patience. Um, there's social factors, interpersonal, interpersonal communication, social identification, group consciousness, the status of your neighbors, political disagreement, social capital, and finally institutional factors, which we hear a lot about and we'll hear some about tonight. Um, you know, contact from political organizations, polling locations, barriers to voting and registration. Um, but that's sort of the big picture and sort of frames up, you know, a lot of ground that I suspect us to cover. I want to start by grounding this conversation quite literally, um, and I'll introduce each of the panelists as I ask them a question. But we'll start with um, uh, Tracy Zilof, um, who has more than 25 years of organizing experience, literally on the ground um, in California and Los Angeles. She's a senior partner at Groundworks Campaigns. Um, she plays a, a role in strategic planning for campaigns and projects, coordinates targeting and data work, um, and provides hands-on management of statewide and California campaigns. Um, 
1993, she started with the, with SC, with the Service Employees Union, worked as a political organizer, uh, and then moved on to the SEIU uh, California State Council in 1997, uh, where she worked for 12 years, last five as the State Council's field director. Um, did a lot of different things there, including directed the field programs for eight successful independent expenditure campaigns and ran statewide legislative campaigns, uh, often in coalition with uh, multiple community labor partners. Um, so just a very straightforward question to start. When you're trying to get people to vote, what are all the different things you do? Evening, folks. Uh, pleased to be here with the panel. Glad we closed the door. It's getting nice and cozy now. Um, what... What I think is the most effective thing to do is to hit people at every chance you can. And that is you want them to come home and get mail out of their mailbox that says that there's an election and, and, and talks to them about the issues of the candidates. You want to be calling, now those of you who are in the receiving end may disagree with this, but you want people to be getting phone calls with somebody who actually can have a real conversation about why they're motivated to support or oppose the issue or candidate. You want people showing up at your door because Really, even if you phone a list, these days you will never get more than about 25% penetration on any list, no matter how many times you call it. Um, what so does penetration mean in that Actually context? reach somebody. So if you had 100 voters and you dial them 20 times at different hours of the day and days of the week, you will still literally only reach 25 of them. So then you need to have a walk program where somebody shows up at your door hopefully not in the middle of the night, and has a conversation with you about the issues of the candidates and social media. I mean, I think so many people rely on that, that it's important to have a presence in social media and then the big things like radio and TV. So the best way to engage people is to really have a cacophony of opportunity for them to hear about there's an election, it matters to you, here's the issues of the candidates, and, you know, from my perspective, and here's the position we hope you'll join us in. It are, of all those different methods, you must look at which are most effective, which are most cost-effective. Do you, do you? Well, I, I'm biased. I'm a field person. Yeah. That's what we do at my firm and all the years that I worked at SEIU. We do direct voter contact. So it's the people-to-people, -people, either on the phones or at the doors, which we typically focus on, mm -hmm. or organizations, you know, going to talk to their own membership. Um, so I do think, you know, I'm... I'm a true believer in the human touch and the opportunity to build whatever small relationship you have when you have a conversation with folks. Um, sometimes that's through volunteers, sometimes through, it's through a paid program. I mean, TV is, and radio is very expensive, but you hit a lot of people, so they each play a different role, which is why, honestly, I think having, having the opportunity to hit people and hit, I don't mean that in a negative way, but contact people in a variety of ways gives you the best chance to actually get engagement. Is it harder to do that field work in LA? You know, we're spread out, we're all over the place. I mean, is it harder to have that personal contact, which, you know, by, by most surveys think, makes honestly, you more likely to vote? Statistically, I think the phone numbers are probably, we probably have a county that has a little bit less of a good phone ability to reach people. And I don't know whether it's just because people are, you know, it's a big population, a lot of people are transient, they don't, you know, drop in phone numbers and stuff. But in terms of walking, LA has, a lot going for it's actually I find the city a fairly great place to work um, I mean it is big so you're gonna have to have a lot of coverage if you're trying to reach people by phones or at the doors but I would say I don't think there's you know there's density which is a real plus if you're knocking on doors as opposed to something that's a more rural community where you're dry, have to drive between houses and long driveways and not reaching people I actually think quite a few neighborhoods here are very accessible and you get a great workout when you're going in like Echo Park and stuff. What's your favorite neighborhood to walk in, in uh, LA doing this work? Where's, where is it um, most productive, easiest? Well, I don't know about easiest. I, I live in Echo Park and have for 20 something years and I love Echo Park because I love to precinct walk and have a reason to peer into my neighbor's houses and see their stuff. <laughs> and, and it's always great to be able to say, oh, I live over on El Tivo Way in Vestal and you know, I'm your neighbor because you get real in with people when you do that. Um, so I like this side of town. To, to be totally forthcoming, the kind of work that we do and doing the direct voter contact, it is harder to do it in wealthier neighborhoods. Um, it's harder, people are less likely to open their doors. Um, I don't want to start out with a heavy thing, but anyways, it's harder in, in wealthier neighborhoids. We can talk about more about it later. But. No, okay. Um, last, last question though. 
is it fair to say you've got, it's fair to say that you have more information on the people you're contacting now than you've had in the past, right? There's, there's yeah, more. Yeah, the voter file more, is enriched and you get a lot of information, yeah. And, and you don't even, you know, and that's even without consulting any NSA databases. You've got everything. Correct. So, so if, if we know so much more, if it's so much easier to target, what is your own view of why turnout, you know, is, is low? Well, it's going to be a big, long conversation tonight. That's the yeah. question. Well, we have a lot of reasons, I think. Um, so I think on the big end, what I would say is, and this isn't because I'm, I have read stuff and talked to a lot of people and, you know, this is a theory, as we talked about theory versus numbers. Um, I think a couple big factors are that some people, a lot of people these days, even people who maybe 20 years ago weren't in this situation, are literally in survival mode. And they're working two jobs, or they're stressed about not having jobs, or they're trying to pay for healthcare, or their car's breaking down. And it is hard to keep the big picture stuff in mind when you honestly don't know whether you can pay your bills or your kid's gonna you know, be okay walking home from school. I mean, I think a lot of that weighs heavily on people's consciousness. Mm. And I think, um, Another piece of it is we've kind of gotten uh, learned disenfranchisement over the years, where even if, like say the first Obama campaign, you know, a lot of people poured a lot of hope and energy and thinking things were gonna change. A little unrealistically to think that one person was suddenly gonna like provide miracles and our whole country was gonna whip into shape after you know, decades of issues. And people quickly then, all the cynicism comes out and that everything that goes wrong is blown out of proportion and it feeds into people, see, I knew that there, nobody would make a difference. And so I think there's a cyclical, you know, ongoing, sometimes purposeful disenfranchisement that happens and it's taken its toll. Let's um, bring uh, Dean Gilliam in conversation. Uh, Frank Gilliam is, uh, is the Dean of uh, UCLA's Luskin School of Public Affairs since uh, 2008 long-time UCLA professor of public policy and political science. Research focuses on strategic communications, public policy, electoral politics, racial and ethnic politics. He's author of Farther to Go, Readings and Cases in African-American Politics. He was a, previously a vice chancellor in community partnerships at the University of California. And um, as dean, he's um, been really focusing on new campaigns to elevate the School of Public Affairs mission of public service. Um, uh, graduate programs in public policy, social welfare, or, or urban planning. Um, let me ask you, I want to ask you about two different areas in, uh, on this topic. Um, those institutional factors, the calendar, registration, and the like. Um, from what we know from research about getting people out to vote, are we, how are we doing in LA in terms of best practices in those institutional areas? Well, I, I think one of the things that we um, neglect to talk about when we're talking about turnout is the historical context of Los Angeles electoral politics. I mean, why do we have uh, these institutional arrangements? Los Angeles is an example of a reform government, and this is what the reformers intended. Uh, for those of you who uh, remember uh, a lot of the things that happened at the turn of the 20th century, uh, captured by Lincoln Steffens in his great book, Shame of the Cities. It really sort of outlined the case for why you wanted reform government. So Los Angeles has instituted a series of things, keep elections, keep these down ballot elections away from being coterminous with up ballot elections. And we've continued, we've chipped away at some of them over the years but we've still maintained many of them. A weak mayor, strong council system, which I think changes the stakes for mayoral governments, uh, mayoral uh, campaigns. And the less less campaign. reason to vote if the mayors can't do all that much. Less reason to vote. Some people would argue it attracts, um, it doesn't attract the best pool of candidates. There's lots of other offices that good candidates can run for, whether it's a board of supervisors, the council itself, the state assembly, the state senate, Congress. I mean, there's a number of things that are attractive to a lot of politicians. So it's against that context of a reform government that we're having this conversation. And so whether it's not, so the idea about nonpartisan uh, elections, to try to sort of keep party out of the thing. One of the things you didn't mention and what political scientists like Fernando and I would say, well, the first thing they teach you in graduate school, if you know anything about voting, know something about a person's political party affiliation, right? And we've essentially taken the parties out of it. I thought the one sort of 
and I always find this interesting, I wrote about this probably 25 years ago, was the one thing we always fail to talk about are the political factors, right? I mean, you mentioned environment, you mentioned demographic factors, social factors, structural factors, but politics matters. And you ask yourself, what kinds of candidates and what kinds of elections have we produced and what are the stakes regardless of the institutional constraints? And so one of the reasons you get extraordinarily low turnout this last time has much to do with politics and the candidates themselves and the nature of the campaign. I'm just looking at a bar graph of, uh, I mean, a line graph of uh, turnout for LA mayor since 1913. And if you look at all the places that it spikes, there was political contestation over the office, whether it's the recall in 1950, whether it's the Yorty Bradley 69 and 73 races, uh, whether it's the Reardon race in 93 when things get jumbled, whether it's the Han Villaraigosa races, the secular trend of decline, but nonetheless the spikes are affiliated with these political factors. So, you know, everybody wants to compare us to New York and Chicago and these, these other cities, stakes are just different and the very nature of the um, institutional arrangements are different because we're a reform government. Chicago and, and New York are not. That's why it's, you know, you get Rahm Emanuel and Michael Bloomberg wanting to be mayor of those cities, right? They have and those all, mayors can do things. They can do it. What, what can't you do in Los Angeles? You have very little control over the school board. Antonio, to his credit, tried to take hold of the schools. He had to do it by legislative action. That was muddled, and he still had little real statutory authority to do much. He doesn't have much, the mayor doesn't have much control over the police chief and the police department. That's why we end up in consent decree and have civilian commissions. So I think to, remember, is to be mindful of the fact that in our attempt to keep corruption out of politics, I think what we've also managed to do is keep the electorate out of politics. Uh, and that's one of the great ironies. I want to ask you about um, uh, some work you've done and, mm -hmm. and, and even more work, uh, collaborative mm -hmm. yours. Uh, Karen Kaufman, who's now at the University of Maryland, has done uh, um, the term uh, minority empowerment, that there, um, there's a moments when a, when, a, when a group is empowered, has a candidate or candidates from its community, Tom Bradley in, in, in L.A., um, and African-Americans and wins, and participation rates of that group can, can jump for, you know, for a long time. Um, after that, and also participation can jump because there's backlash to the rise of that group, and uh, the notion that sort of conflict can be this this boosted participation. And it, you know, in reading your work on this, it, it made me wonder if we are um, if we are getting along a little too well in LA to have big turnouts. Well, you know, it's interesting. I'd be very interested to hear what my colleague Fernando has to say about this, because when Antonio finally won. Everybody said, done deal. There'll never be another white mayor in Los Angeles, right? There'll be Latino power. There's a large and growing and politicized Latino electorate. It's not going to happen. And that you get, in fact, two moderately liberal white candidates, uh, it turns out to be quite, quite fascinating. So what happens? Um, the groups have a contest over power. So in 69, right, when Bradley runs the first time, there's great fear that there's going to be African-American takeover. Turnouts through the roof, 70 some odd percent, 75 percent turnout for a mayoral election. Huh? Right, well, pretty soon, right? It's actually 61 elections. No, no, separating the garbage. This was straight fear, racial fear, right? Bradley comes back in 73, turnouts through the roof again. It's uh, uh, 65, 66%. Now we're comparing it to our 20%. Where do we end up? Do we end up at 23? 20, yeah. uh, 24. 24.7 so, in the, so two in the May runoff. We were at like 21 in the primary. Right. And so what ha well, we wrote a paper called The Empowerment Life Cycle. So what we showed was that when there is still a contestation over the spot between groups, um, everybody shows up, right? Because they think they have a chance. Uh, we, were, we were talking, I was talking to somebody here. There's an old model in political science called the Minimax Regret Model. The Minimax Regret Model goes like this. Your maximum regret would be if your preferred candidate lost by a minimum of one vote.
right? So as these stakes were rising, right, white voters said, geez, if I don't show up and we lose by one vote, I mean, symbolically, these other guys are going to take over. Once the other guys do, in fact, take over, and you see my little graph here, turnout just, it's over, right? <laughs> turnout plunges. There's no contest until you get another reason, right, for a battle, right? And so the Villaraigosa Han spikes it, right, the first time, and then spikes it again the second time, and then it recedes. And now our problem is it's just falling off the table. Somebody said to me, we need a... We need a Chinese, was it you? We I think it was me, yes. What do we need, a Chinese? A Chinese American inspiring, but somehow threatening to some people, <laughs> candidate, you know, to get people or, or you need a, Or you need a right of center Republican candidate yeah. to mobilize the liberal base. So I guess I'm saying two things. One, remember we're a reform city, three things. Two, remember that when these ethnic groups, and in some cases class groups, cl uh, battle one another when there's a real possibility that the, that the game is in the balance, people will, will, will show up. And three, we're, we're a reform city. And so we have a lot of things working against having people show up to vote. Okay. Let's, um, let, thank you. Let's bring in um, Fernando Guerra, who's the director of the Thomas and Dorothy Levy Center of, for the Study of Los Angeles at Loyola Marymount University. Um, he also serves as assistant to the president for civic engagement. He's a professor of political science and uh, Chicano Studies, he served as chairman of, uh, of the Chicago Studies Department, director of the American Cultures Program, director of the Summer in Mexico Program. He's been on the faculty there since 1984, and he was born and raised right here in the city of Los Angeles, the Northeast section, an alum of Franklin High School, yeah. uh, and still lives here. So let's get you in on this um, uh, subject. I, um, you guys do some great uh, uh, survey, uh, exit polls and, mm -hmm. and survey work. Um, and this was not a specifically political survey, but one you did last year, it was 20, uh, 20 years after the 20, riots. Right. Um, and you know, the headline in the papers of the, your survey result was that people were feeling much better about race relations in the city. Um, but when you look deep in those numbers, but people were not feeling so good about LA, its future and direction. Um, actually, most people felt better about their own neighborhood than right. about the direction of the city. And the frustration was really deep, really pessimistic when it came to jobs, economy, and the ability to find you know, housing. Um, and I wonder, is that pessimism in your view a, a big reason why we're seeing these turnouts? Yeah, I mean, when you think about turnout, excuse me, uh, you think <coughs> about two grand theories. Uh, one is that people are so disaffected yeah. and don't think they have an impact and don't make a difference that they're not going to turn out to vote. And some of that data would go in that direction. The other is that people are so, they're, they're okay with the way the system is and that they don't need to go out to vote because it's going to remain the same anyway. They won't make a difference. So both of those, whether you're very uh, uh, content or whether you're not, lead you not to go and vote is the grand theory. Um, but uh, the other thing that we have in political science that we know is that um, that uh, most of the literature about national elections shows that even if we increase turnout in about 95% of the races, it wouldn't have made a difference. And so if you take increased turnout from where it was all the way to 100% and you extrapolate along with, a, uh, with some exit polls and some pre-election and post-election polls and extrapolate who would have, how would people have voted, 95% uh, of the time, the election would have uh, stayed the same. There's exceptions, obviously, 2,000 probably, uh, that would have been a difference. Um, and, that, and that's actually a, very much a consensus in political science. There's been a whole new uh, bit of literature that shows that while that's true at the national level and at, and at the state level, it isn't true at all at the local level. That turnout does make a difference who wins. And they're able to show that the lower the turnout, the, the um, greater the differences between who would have won, if, again, if we extrapolate. And so um, we've extrapolated some. And we, uh, we believe that um, for the mayor's race, it would not have made a difference. That had we t increased the turnout to 40% like it was in 1993 in Reardon Wu, uh, that uh, Eric would still have won. Had it, we increased it to 76% in terms of uh, Bradley Yorty, uh, Eric would have won. He actually would have increased his uh, a percent of win in each one of those uh, cases. Um, however, we also think that there would have been uh, two different um, in, in two specific council campaigns, it would have made a difference. Uh, we believe that in the ninth district, had we increased turnout, that that race would have turned out differently. 
And we also believe that it had uh, turnout been increased in the um, sixth district uh, in May, that that would have made a difference and would have had um, uh, Cindy Montanez win outright during that election. And then, of course, she ended up losing in an election that was even half the turnout in, in terms of that. Um, and I got to say that uh, um, the Nuri Martinez campaign was probably one of the best run campaigns I've ever seen in, in the sense that they knew that turnout was only going to be uh, 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 so low, like 10%, I think it ended up being 10 or 11%. She came in second in, in May. Remember, it's a special election to fill the uh, a seat of Tony Cardenas, who was elected to Congress. So they held the primary at the same time as a general election, right? And that turnout was about 24%. And then uh, Cindy Montañez won 42% of the vote. Okay, and Nuri Martinez was in the low 20s. So she had a 20% uh, uh, advantage. They then hold the uh, runoff in July with about half the people, less than half the people voting, and Nuri wins by uh, over 10%, 56 to 44. Okay, completely different electorate. But had the turnout increased in that May election, Cindy would have won outright, yeah. and Ana Cubas would have won in the ninth district. We believe uh, had the turnout had increased. So turnout matters. So turnout, turnout, especially in local elections, it really matters. And we also know in political science, in terms of the literature, is overwhelming on this. I could tomorrow double the turnout by simply changing the election to the presidential election. But are we really increasing that? That's kind of artificial. We're just putting it along with a presidential election. We know that. And every time we move municipal elections, it increases, right? Because that's the presidential election. But the problem with that is in this past uh, November, that meant that the mayor's race would have been, I'm sorry, I forget whether it was either the 16th or the 26th item on the ballot. And so it's way down. And we also know that there is ballot fatigue, and as you go down lower, there is people who stop voting. Um, and do, you know, so, do you know if people in that, in, when there are many different things, their higher profile, governor's race or, or presidential race, that the people voting for mayor in those elections know less about the candidates? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in, you in try standalone, odd numbered year. Elections. Yeah, try to get, um, and I, I think Tracy knows about this, try to get attention for a lower level uh, campaign during the president's mm -hmm. election. You know, it's not only that the president would be on the ballot, but sometimes, you know, U.S. Senate seat, a congressional seat, the county seats, the state assembly seats, all these other seats, and then all the initiatives. You know, la you know, last time I think we had eight or so, and then the mayoral race, and then try to get fundraising, try to get money for the campaigns, try to buy commercials. It, it, you would have, um, the, the, they would have raised a lot less money, they would have had a lot less commercials, not that you would have seen less commercials during that time, you would have seen even more commercials, but the time would have been very uh, expensive, et cetera. And so I'm not, I'm not in favor of moving the election, the mayoral election, to the um, November election, because I think it presents other kinds of problems. Uh, the second thing that we know that would greatly increase, I could guarantee you that it would increase turnout by about 15% uh, tomorrow is if we made the elections partisan. And because people would know who the Democrat or the Republican is, et cetera. Now, um, as we all know, uh, both uh, uh, Council President Wesson and the mayor are going to put together an election commission and they're going to study this. But that is completely off the table. And the reason it's off the table is nothing that they can control. It's against the uh, state constitution. And so the state constitution says that every local county and city election has to be nonpartisan. You would have to change the California constitution to do that. Let me, I'm going to ask you about one um, slightly different topic in mm -hmm. this area. Um, the way you do exit polling, sure. the racially stratified mm -hmm. homogeneous precinct approach, you get into the precincts, right. uh, or your students can, are yeah. you out there too? With the, yeah, yeah, I am, but yeah. not, as, not as much as they are. Yeah, okay. And, um, I and go visit like 10 or 12 different ones. So you end. see a lot of precincts, mm -hmm. you've got a lot of data oh, on the, yeah. the precincts, and there's this issue of the, the quality of the precincts, um, particularly being different perhaps in, in poorer places, right. and just even the overall quality, there's been yeah. precinct consolidation. How, what, how much of a factor is that in this? I, I what should we be aware I think, of? I think it is a great factor. Um, in addition to doing the exit polls, uh, some of the elections, we've actually also done what we call a precinct quality checklist. And we've had students visit over 300 different polling locations 
throughout the city, and we have a checklist that we take a look at in terms of how easy was it to identify them, where, the, where was a flag, how, you know, was it ADA accessible, et cetera, et cetera. And you clearly see a distinction between um, precincts in, in poor neighborhoods and in well-off neighborhoods. I mean, there's one precinct in uh, the west side where you drive up and you valet park and they have croissants and uh, lattes yes. while waiting for you while you vote. We should uh, all do provisional yes. ballots over there. Yeah, it, it's, it. it's incredible. And then you have others where you literally have to go through yards where the dog is still left there and it says beware of dog, you know, and we have pictures of these. Uh, and it's just incredible. And then the constant uh, 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 changing of the precincts. I got the idea of doing the uh, provisional precincts because um, I went to go take my mom to vote, going back to Highland Park where uh, I grew up and I picked her up and I just drove immediately to where it's always been. And she goes, oh no, it's not there anymore. I think it's over there. And then we drove, we drove to three different places. Finally, we had to drive back home to get the ballot to take a look at uh, the, um, the address and we finally uh, went over there. And I realized then that they had changed the precinct location for where my mom votes in uh, four of the last five elections. Uh, and because, you know, you have to volunteer the place. And the other thing that was incredibly crazy, because I always thought, why not use elementary schools, et cetera? Um, and, and, and we noticed this in several of them. It's the, the principal gives the okay. And there's some principals who just say, no, we don't want it, it bothers us, or uh, we're going to plan to do something else. The idea that you couldn't move an activity for one day for an election day and that principals uh, really made that decision was just incredible. So um, just one last word on our, our exit poll. I do have to brag about the students. Uh, it was the most accurate exit poll in the history of, of Los Angeles. Um, we had, um, so you talked about the stratified homogeneous precincts. Um, what, what brought our attention was that um, in the 2000 election and the 2004 election, national uh, exit polls, you know, they took a lot, a lot of hits. But what people don't realize is that they were 99% correct. They were just not correct in Florida. Okay. Um, and, and, but then what happened in the 2004 exit poll, um, it actually, if you compare the two polls done by the same company using the same methodology, it showed that Latino support for George Bush increased, so much so that it actually explained the total increase of his support from you know, 49.9% to 51.5%. And it's like, okay, this is crazy. This didn't happen. Okay, we know it didn't happen because there was no particular policy that he pursued, and in the campaign there was no particular campaign strategy that showed that Latinos had, had swung to his side. And it was a methodological issue in that it just so happened where the Latinos that they were polling, mostly in South Florida and in Texas. And so then we realized that Latinos in certain neighborhoods vote differently than Latinos at large, as well as African Americans and Asians, as well as whites. And so that we theorized that a Latino living in a wealthy area is going to be a little bit more conservative, and a white living in Echo Park or a more multicultural area is going to be more liberal. And so let's draw our sample, not of all African Americans in the cities, but African Americans in the most African American districts. So then we divided the city into five types of precincts, you know, either African American, Latino, Asian, white, or multicultural. And then we drew 10 precincts from each one of those. And those make up our 50 precincts that we send students to. And then there, the students ask voters come out. We um, ask you know, for them to uh, uh, participate every third one. And of course, there's always, because voters who are civically engaged, like you people, always want to take the polls. And you would ruin our, our, our sample. <laughs> and so we always tell the, the students, go ahead, give them the survey, but just then put it aside. And we don't count it. <laughs> because you know, we, we ask, uh, we ask uh, you know, the, the wife to take out the poll, and then the husband gets annoyed. And so we give it to him, but we don't count his. Uh, so, but we, so we, we did that, and, and then, but we know that increasingly people are voting by absentee ballot. Yeah. And, and, and so to be accurate, so then what we do is we get, and, and we, this is provided by the city clerk or the county clerk, is a list of all the absentee ballots that have, uh, or a list of phone numbers of all those that have been returned. And so for the uh, last week before the election, we randomly select people to call. And, and, we, and we, uh, uh, we randomly got 400 people who voted in the election r the week right before. And so we then are able to meld those two. And the, um, 
the absentee ballots, as we all know, it was uh, 51 uh, 49 for Wendy Gruel, and that's what we got as well. And then, of course, it was very different in the actual vote. And so at, at 5 o'clock, we also know uh, how certain precincts vote in the morning, and we can extrapolate from that. So we actually had the results by, not the official results, but our projections by 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. But we didn't let people like him know because he would tell everybody in the world. That's true, that's and true. so we keep it obviously till, till 8 o'clock. I, I want to get into sort of the rapid, sure. uh, uh, rapid response uh, part of the evening and, and cover a lot of different issues and, and questions that come up on this, this question of turnout and how to um, just say, what about in the registration area? Um, you know, California did online voter registration. Did that, you know, there were some reports that that made a difference in turnout in the 2012 elections, but yeah. it didn't seem to help us in LA. What's going on there? I well, I, I do. Th I mean, hundreds of thousands of people, if I remember, yeah. did the online registration yeah. at the end of 2012. I and mean, they were it was, more likely to vote, actually. Those yeah, they definitely did more yeah. turnout. I, I would say, from my limited perspective, that I do not being a political scientist, um, a practitioner, that um, the folks who turn out in local elections tend to be very different than people who turn out at state or national elections. For, I mean, I would say that I think people are usually older, whiter, more, not all wealthy, but certainly more moneyed in a local election. I just, that's but been our they're experience. They're the same people that turn out in national elections. They right? do they, turn out, but I mean, it's a limited right. pool. Correct. So, so more people, so of those who, I do think right. people registered online and they would vote in the more, be more likely to vote in a state or federal election, but aren't necessarily, because I think a lot of young people, a lot of people of color, are the ones who signed up on the online. I think that was a lot of the numbers. Um, what about, um, you know, we, like a lot of places, uh, uh, including in a lot of other states, um, we, we, um, we, we draw uh, a jury service from voter registration rolls. Is that a discourager? I, I'm married to someone who wouldn't register for many years because she didn't feel, you know, jury service. I've heard it called a, that's a poll tax, essentially. It's so costly to get a day off from time off from work to, to, to serve on a jury, that, that's one reason people give for not registering. I think that is a, a, a reason, but um, you know, at the end of the day, let me go back to the, this election commission that's gonna take a look at how to increase turnout in the city of LA. Um, number one, they can't make it partisan because of the state constitution. Right. Um, and so, um, what are, so there is no real quick fix, but there's a bunch of them. One is registration. Why not do same day registration? Yeah. Why not do online registration? Mm -hmm. Why not do registration in any form? If the idea is to try to get people to register, we just need to do that. And it's not a matter of can we do it? We know how to do it. And is it a matter of cost? Yeah, it's a matter of cost, but what's more important, we know we spend billions of dollars to defend democracy, but we don't want to spend a dollar to practice democracy. It's always kind what is, of what ironic. What does same day registration look like for you, those who have never experienced there, it? There's a variety of different ways of doing it and uh, basically the, the bottom line is that you register that same day, your ballot goes into a provisional uh, box that, until they uh, confirm all the, um, all, all the uh, information on there. Okay. So. Um, what, what are, uh, Calendar issues. I mean, uh, you said that you know, let's not let's not go at the same time as the presidential gubernatorial race. But is you know March and May the yeah, is that is that the ideal spread? I, I looked it up. I know it's lame in LA to complain about the weather, but you know with March with March elections, you get essentially the campaign season, the election, and the three rainiest months of the year: January, February, and March. Um, you know, should we move that, spread that out, do something with it? You know, I'm going to, well, I'll say it. Um, <laughs> look, there's a lot of things we can do to increase turnout at the margins. Yeah. From same-day registration to online registration to making sure that there's some regularity in polling places and a number of things. But I think there's two things to consider. The first is that people don't go to the polls to flip a coin. You need a real election. You need good candidates. You need good campaigns. If there are weak candidates and weak campaigns, people aren't going to show up. It's as simple as that. I mean, everybody's bemoaning this turnout in this last election. And I would say I know both candidates, as probably everybody up here does. I think highly of them as people. 
but they were both horribly run campaigns. One was a misguided campaign and one was a non-campaign of two candidates who were ideologically similar, who were from the same party. So I, 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 you know, I don't get too excited about the low turnout. The second fact is I don't know that we should care about low turnout at all. Democratic theory argues that you need an informed and participatory electorate. But it doesn't say when, and it doesn't say across the distribution of elections when. Uh, the, if you want to increase turnout, there's a real simple way, make it compulsory. I mean, if that's the goal, I don't know that that's the goal. One could argue that the ballot can serve as a check, right? So Fernando, about, makes, a point, Fernando makes a point that either some people are so disaffected, right, that they don't feel efficacious at all, and others aren't disaffected enough to show up the at the polls to throw the bums out. That you can show up at the polls and throw the bums out, that you can contest the elections, it seems to me, is the important point. There are some so simple things to do, and I'm sure the commission's gonna come back with the obvious things. I, in fact, I said to you, Joe, when we talked on the phone, what are we really gonna talk about at this thing? All these things are fairly obvious to do. Everybody's talked about them. And so I guess my devil's advocacy is, you know, is this much ado about nothing? Are you going to go and you're going to get another five or ten percentage points and whoop de doo you know Let me, I, yeah. I, I need to respond to this. Good. Oh, I want to say something too. Yeah, go ahead. Good. Yeah. Go, no, you go ahead. first. Okay. Um, I don't disagree with what he said, but I think it's incomplete. And here's what I mean by that. He's absolutely right in terms of the describing the, the situation. But what I think we need to do is that I, most elections are going to happen the same way we tend to see them. I would like to see a system that allows for when people do get fed up yeah. to be able to act on it, okay? And so that when people do get fed up right now, it's too difficult. It's like you have to register 30 days before, 60 days before. And so, no, just, but, but every once in a while, the electorate always surprises us. They, I mean, yes, 95% of the time, the incumbents get reelected. Yes, 95% of the time, the people we expect to win, win. But there's always that two, three, five percent of the time when they surprise us. How can we change institutions to help that surprise happen more often? See, Fernando, yeah. I, I agree with you. I mean, I yeah. started by saying that I think we should do those things. We can do those right. things. They make a lot of sense. In fact, if I was concerned about anything, I would be concerned about the poorest voters in the right. city and the things that we can do to make them feel more connected. Right to our government. I'd worry more about that than I would about getting people to show up and, to and, vote. And I think Frank is right that every single one only adds maybe one or two percent, okay, but it has a cumulative effect. I want Tracy to get in here. Yeah, well, a couple things is I think part of the problem is if we see the election as the be-all, end-all of political engagement yeah. of our citizenry, then we've made a big mistake right, right. because People have to, it is our responsibility that not only do we get to vote them out in some time, but to pressure people throughout and, you know, be engaged in what legislation's coming up or issues or, you know, whether it's your community or the state or the federal. I mean, I think we have, that would be the best thing is if it wasn't just, oh, you go to vote every two years, or every six months or whatever it is, and then you've done your duty and you're done. So I think we have to allow for and build for that as well. But I, I think, and maybe I'm wrong about the numbers and you guys will correct me, um, I think in terms of who's registered versus who's not versus the population, that we do have a disparity and that there's, um, if people of color, younger people, uh, working class people were registered at a higher level and participated at a higher mm -hmm. level, I do think it would make a difference because yes. even though it's not always true, some candidates are, you know, you're, it's shades of gray, there are differences. And with all this, I, I focus more on the state than the local stuff, but you know, so you've got a top two primary at the state level. Mm -hmm. You're gonna have two Democrats in many districts and two Republicans, there's not that many marginalized seats anymore. But you're gonna have a difference of, in some cases, who's a business Democrat, who really is basically gonna, you know, toe a corporate more conservative line and a working class Democrat who actually wants to preserve our social safety net and invest in education and, you know, cut down on prisons, good things that we might agree with. So I do think that it is critical uh, to get more people to vote and make sure that we're targeting who we get to vote because I think a lot of younger people, people of color, people in working class, if we could engage them, we would see policy change. But, but, Tracy, there's a dark side of targeting, right? I mean, one of the arguments is made is that political professionals and yourself have gotten too good, that they, they don't just bring people out to the polls, but 
they discourage the other guys, people <clears throat> from getting out of the polls. Um, is that, how do you think about that? You, 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 well, I mean, I, we jokingly tell people, yeah, if they say they're not for us, then tell them that the election's on Wednesday. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, we don't, we don't institutionally do that. I think, I think that negative campaigning in general does have a depressive uh, thing. So I think when people engage and that's all you do is you're, like, tearing apart the other candidate or the issue, that you are going to suppress the vote. And, you know, I, I personally think it's really hard to have a real conversation. Because we do the face-to-face -face or on the phone with a live human, it is hard just to give a negative message. So I'm not supportive of straight camp negative campaigning, which I think is a per people do it to suppress the vote. Um, I was just wondering, Fernando, you mentioned something earlier, and I was curious about that, that about partisan elections. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I was thinking about what Tracy just said. <clears throat> and I'm not sure there's anything sort of in our system that would give you the kind of candidates that you're talking about, right? I mean, it's, it, it's been interesting to me. Antonio, a little bit different, a little bit different, but then sort of has to come. So the nonpartisan elections make everybody run to the middle, right. right? So they almost guarantee that you're going to get moderate candidates of some sort. I mean, I know uh, both Wendy and Eric think they're liberals, but um, <laughs> certainly neither one's a progressive. And they are, and, and, and I think if you ask them, uh, both tried to run as moderates, right? And so to get the kind of, I'm, I'm just curious what you all think would produce a better, maybe I guess that's what I'm after, is a better pool of candidates, different kind of candidate. I, I, I'm, I'm extraordinarily disheartened, and I say this with, I love to say this, because every time you say this, it means you're going to insult somebody. With all due respect, yeah. uh, <laughs> I, I, I like both the candidates, they're well-meaning public servants, but I think Los Angeles deserves better. For example, if you look at de Blasio in New York, yeah. right, I mean, I guess my question is, could somebody like that get elected in Los Angeles? No, yes. okay, I, I would take issue with that. I mean, if you take a look, uh, basically on our formal things in terms of education, credentials, et cetera, there is nobody more qualified to be mayor of Los Angeles than Eric Garcetti. I mean, he's a Rhodes Scholar. He was president of the city council. So even if you do educational credentials, if you do uh, professional credentials, if you do the fact that he lived in the valley, grew up in the valley, lived on the mid-cities, you know, has some presence in the west side, the fact that he's half Latino, half Jewish, half something else. I mean, you know, you know it's like if I, were, if I were to draw up the perfect mayor for Los Angeles, this, you know, well, I'll um, ask an obvious thing, Fernando. I, All like, those things are descriptive. What is no, he they stand are descriptive. For? What does he I'm stand for? I'm looking forward to seeing you on the election commission. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All and, right. And I like him, and I agree with those things. He's smart, educated, no, articulate. But on formal, I'm, I'm just saying the, the formal credentials, and same with Wendy. I'll tell you one of the greatest things about this election was the fact that I saw this white woman from the valley. Is South Central LA and East LA, and she felt so comfortable, and that people in those communities felt so comfortable. There was no racial tension about that, and it was to me, it was an amazing thing that I really enjoyed that. Even though there was racial polarized voting, that uh, something like over 60% of African Americans voted for her and not for Eric, and over 60% of uh, Latinos voted for Eric and not for her. So there was racialized polarized voting uh, in this election, but it didn't manifest itself in, these, uh, in, these, in the forums and in everything that I, so that, I, that I went be, to. I'm going to be cynical. And I, I would say the one characterization of the absence of tension is apathy. Um, well, the other, uh, you, you mean, go back. Meaning you, I'm not so sure they, at so least African-American community, so they care that much. This is an unfair question. Would you rather have the 24% turnout apathetic election, or would you rather have the 76% turnout uh, racially well, dated, hated type of election yeah. in 69 or 73? Well, I think that's a false I mean, like, I think that's a false dichotomy. Of course it is. I'm a professor. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm asking you not to be. That's what they criticize us for. We're out of touch with reality. That, that, I did describe two realities. I actually described two realities. I want to uh, uh, go to questions, but I want to make one, uh, moderator's progress, make one note that we could all be missing the entire point, which is that uh, 
scholars from UC San Diego, they're from San Diego, so we, that caveat, um, uh, including geneticists, came to LA uh, in 2008 and 2009 and studied hundreds of twins in Los Angeles County, both identical and non-identical twins. And they, um, and they concluded from the study that the, the, the political participation and voter behavior of the identical twins was extremely similar. Yeah. And the non-identical twins, it was all over the map. Um, and that and a few other things, they reproduced this nationally, suggests that it's genetic. That we're, that, are, we're, that, that we're wired genetically to have different levels of political participation. Do you buy that? Has that, has that uh, you know, found its way into the political science? No, I mean, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't buy that at all. I mean, one of my colleagues uh, in, at uh, Loyola Marymount also just published a paper showing that uh, you're more likely to become a Republican if you have sisters. I mean, the, uh, that, that was a big finding. And of, of all the stuff that we've done in political... Yeah, it, 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 it was like everything we've published in, in the department in the last, uh, you know, five years or so, that got more press than anything else. So it's like strange. Well, with that, let's um, uh, go to questions from the audience. Uh, we've covered a lot, but hope you can fill in some of the gaps. Thank you. Stephanie Pincel, UCLA. Hi, Stephanie. Um, so we've talked a lot about people as representing political uh, parties and, and voting about people, but we have not really talked about issues and how people yeah. vote on issues yeah. like referendums and recalls and also ballot initiatives. And what comes to mind is the, um, the voting for term limits. And so I think it's, I would be very curious to know, given the kumbaya nature of nonpartisan elections, um, that we are still very tickled by the notion of term limits. Thank you. Every poll that we do about term limits and every election that we have about term limits show that the electorate is still very supportive. Term limits also gave us the opportunity to, in a sense, say this election for Los Angeles was very unique. It was the most um, open election in terms of candidates because of the lack of incumbents. We had the three citywide offices, no incumbent running, and we had a majority of the council seats up, no incumbent running, and, and a lot of it due to term limits. And so, therefore, this gave us the opportunity to say, if you really want to run, this is the time you should run. And yet, go, going back to Frank's question, who decided to run, et cetera, and it was mostly people who held uh, elected office. As a matter of fact, yeah. I, I think it was, every single person who won was either an elected office or worked for an elected official. I think that's an interesting question because it's sort of to Tracy's point. I mean, there's lots of, I mean, to sort of being serious, democratic theory doesn't rest on just voting uh, uh, for candidates. And, it's, and it really raises a question about this notion of direct democracy. I mean, is it a good thing? Some people argue it's democratizing. Other people say that our bar, and I'd be curious what you all think, the bar for getting issues on the ballot in terms of referenda is too low in California. Right? Other states seem to do it a little bit better. Sometimes it goes to the legislature and then has to pass the threshold. Um, so I do think it raises some interesting questions about citizen participation and direct democracy. I'm Charlie Jensen and I'm with Arts for LA. Um, we talked a lot about how voter turnout might affect the outcome of the election, but I'm curious to know if any of you have a feeling uh, as to whether or not the act of voting itself, if we got more people to engage in the act of voting, if that would have tangential benefits for the city of Los Angeles, increased public safety, um, more investment in neighborhood cleanliness, things like that. So, I mean, obviously, the more people who participate and choose certain public policies, that, that has an impact. But I think you're talking about it, that it, it's a civic activity and that one civic activity leads to another. And I certainly agree with that. You know, there, I'm trying to think of a, a study that actually talks about that, but I, I can't for the life of me uh, rem remember the author. And, and they, they make the point that uh, clearly the more you vote, the more you do all kinds yeah. of other different activities. And even if you only vote for the first time, um, so it, it's clearly, uh, there's a, clearly a link about uh, voting and then engaging in other civic activity. William Kelleher, I heard on NPR the other day that in-store November holiday shopping was down 4%, but online shopping was up 21%. Why don't we uh, get hip? I have my 
own explanation for this is a conspiracy. Well, it's not really a conspiracy. It's all about procurement and government contracting. We should be doing this. I mean, you all do ATM transactions and all that, and that, you know, we've figured out how to be secure about that. Uh, every time that a governmental entity, either the, the uh, um, Secretary of State or the County Clerk or the City Clerk in any jurisdiction takes a look at doing this, they send out a, a, a contract and then, they, you know, how they write the specs and all that. They get all the big corporations who produce these machines and then they all fight and sue each other and never get anything, never allow anyone to be implemented because they don't want one company to win. I think that's been happening over and over. This, it's such a... Uh, uh, an in in incredible uh, uh, disappointment. Yes, we ought to have online voting. It's not, it, it isn't rocket science. I mean, we, we have figured it out for all kinds of different things, you know. It, do mail, I mean, we, you know, mail was touted as this thing that was gonna lose turnout. We got mail, turnouts are still, in a lot of societies, not just ours, turnouts are still going down in established democracies. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you have online voting, don't you end up is that going to actually help your turnout, or are you just going to move people yeah, who are I voting think, in different ways to that way? I think it will increase turnout. Not, yeah. It's not the magic wand, but again, adding all these different elements. And, and people do vote more often if they vote by mail. I mean, L.A. County has one of the worst vote by mail, people who are registered to vote by mail, any other county in the state. I and mean, we're at like why 20 percent. Why is that? Why are we so I know poor? why it is. Okay, why is it? When we changed the state law, the Secretary of State allowed the counties to implement that new change. 57 counties uh, implemented and added where, when you first register, right. that you could check off and be permanent absentee voter. The county registrar of Los Angeles thought it was a bad idea, and she didn't put it on the forms. Yeah. Okay, therefore, you had to go and ask for the, uh, now when you go and register today, it's on there, it's been changed. But everybody who registered during that period if they haven't re-registered, still have to request that. Well, it wasn't even just that. It was that you couldn't get a permanent status Correct. unless you had something, you know, like right. a, you had a disability right. or something like that. You could, you could get an absentee ballot so that if you were going to be out of town, you could do it that one time. That has changed now, yeah. too. Yeah, and that was just one person who was very yeah. resistant to that. And so that in the last statewide election, Californians voted, uh, if, you, if you exclude L.A. County, Californians voted like 56%. Uh, by mail, okay? And L.A. County was down in the 30s. And therefore, when you add L.A. County into that, it brings the whole state below 50%. Yeah, and we did a program. The Democratic Party hired us to go to, uh, to, to sign up pre already registered occasional voting Democrats in the county of L.A. and get them to sign up to be permanent vote by mail. We signed up a little over 50,000 people in a couple of months' time. The next election, double-digit increases in those same occasional voters to other occasional voters just like right. them demographically because they had the chance to vote by mail. It does work. I think a major reason for the disconnect and the lack of civic engagement is that the city council districts are too big. If we had 45 districts instead of 15, it wouldn't take uh, six figures to run a credible campaign for the council. And as a result, you'd have a broader array of candidates, more focused on local issues, and the resulting council would be less beholden to special interests. Uh, could a, you comment on that? I'm not sure that I believe that, because um, there isn't data to prove it one way or the other, but it's a great theory. Um, but from a practical perspective, that any time we've talked about increasing the size of the city council, the board of supervisors, or anything, it'll get voted down. So this election commission that's going to take a look at things, the last thing they're going to recommend, recommend to put on the, because whatever the election commission does, they're going to have to craft it and give it to the city council, and the city council is going to have to put it on the charter, or, or, excuse me, on, as an initiative for a charter change. Right. Anything, if they put to increase the number of council seats, that will kill it. Because uh, every survey we've done, every single time we've tried to increase either the city council or the county board of supervisors or anything, it gets killed because people say, no, we don't want more politicians. Yeah. We're exceptional in that area, aren't we, in terms of the size of our city council districts, size of supervisorial districts, yeah. even uh, size of our state legislative districts. how big the supervisorial districts yeah. are. Yeah. Uh, and, but there is a question of governance. I mean, I mean to, um, at what point is a city council or is a board too big? You know, if you get the board, does doubling the board of supervisors to, to 10 make a difference? Is, will it make it harder to govern? I mean, I think that's, some people argue that the smaller size 
makes them have to make deals. There's enough, you know, you can make deals, but if you had to make deals, it's like Congress, we had to make deals with another 15 people, it's a problem. I'm just raising the question about governance, not about turnout or the electoral politics of it. Yeah, I mean, but to your point, uh, a state senate seat in California is larger than a congressional seat. Yeah. The, um, a supervisorial seat, one supervisorial seat in LA County is larger than, um, uh, ten, than 10 states. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It's the hidden kingdom. Yeah. People don't yeah. know how much power the board has. There was a study out in the last couple of months, and I, I'm sorry to say I don't remember exactly who conducted it, that showed that congressional votes at the national level had very little to do with constituency uh, pressure or votes on and polling on issues that tracked exactly or very closely with big co contributor desires. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that plays out locally, but is this a reason for voters feeling disenfranchised and does more voting bypass that? The problem I have with that study is it takes, for instance, a, a, a survey of someone in a congressional, of people in a congressional district and says they rank these things here and then it shows the, the vote of the uh, member of Congress and sometimes they don't link. But oftentimes those are not really hardcore issues for the constituents. They're, you know, even though they uh, uh, ranked education first, the fact that their congressman doesn't, is not on the education committee or doesn't pursue it very much is not that as important as in bringing jobs or something of that nature. And so there's, there's a little disconnect in terms of, the, uh, of that study, the way I, I viewed it. Yeah. Thoughts? I mean, do you, do you get that from people when you're approaching trying to get in the vote? Oh, it doesn't matter. It's what the rich people want, what the donors are. Is that a reason given for I'm not going to vote? Yeah, I think people a lot of times feel like it won't make a difference or they're not listening to me or, you know, they're not going to follow what I care about anyways. Sure. I think people I, I mean, that. I think the question that you raise, that, that you point to, and, and I, I agree with you, Fernando, on, on the methodology of the study, but something we really haven't talked about here tonight is money in elections mm -hmm. and the role that money plays in elections and what would happen if we started to reform campaign spending laws and what are the right ways to do that and would that, in fact, increase efficacy, right? Because people say, I mean, this was, what, either whether it's labor unions or corporations uh, donating money, I mean, after Citizens United, um, you know, people worry a great deal about money in elections. I don't know what it, what it would do to local turnout, but it is pretty ridiculous that these candidates spent several million dollars, uh, you know, to get a few hundred thousand people out to vote. We I have time for. Just say we should not mention labor unions and corporations as though they are an even playing field out no. there in the world. No. They're just both just big contributors. Just to be clear, yes. they're both big but contributors. But in some elections, labor unions spend more than corporations. Right, but if you look in at many, across the board, especially in local elections. But across the board, it no, is no across a the board, absolutely. It, they're representing lots of people. Yeah. My name is Larry Kaplan. How much of this do you think is cultural? And what I mean by that is. We live in a city that's very dispersed and fragmented and spread out, so people have a sense of personal space and therefore less of a feeling of being in this whole thing together. And we also live in a city that historically has been made up of people coming from other places to come here to do their own thing and be individuals. And politics and elections are really about civic action and collective responsibility. And how much of that do you think goes against the grain of what LA really is in terms of the city's character. I do agree with you and certainly the research that we see that the um, longer that you're here, the more likely it is that you're going to, um, to vote. We also find that close to 15%, every time we do a survey, you mentioned the 20 years after the riots, we did one obviously five years, 10 years, 15 years, et cetera, and we all, in each one of those, we realized that 15% of the adult population had not been in Los Angeles for the, they, they had just come to Los Angeles the last five years. But I also would question the idea that the dispersed, we're actually one of the most dense cities in urban America right now. We don't like to think of ourselves that way, but, uh, but, but we are. Uh, and so we're not as dispersed as, as one might, might think. Um, and uh, you know, there's some very vibrant neighborhoods and people take pride in their neighborhoods. And clearly in every single survey that we have done, we asked, are things going in the right direction or wrong direction for the city? And then we ask the very same question for your neighborhood. And your neighborhood uh, tends to go 10 to 15% higher of, of things going in the right direction. So people have very much pride 
in their neighborhood and a little bit less in the abstraction that we know LA, as LA. The other thing I would say is that um, Los Angeles has a lot of issue publics, right? So th that is to say people who galvanize around particular issues. So the sort of the enemy that you refer to that comes with a transient population is overcome when people get intense about issues. So we have uh, a very strong environmental movement here in Los Angeles and have done lots of things. We have a very strong children's advocacy movement. I mean, we have a bunch of sort of things down the line um, that people do in fact come together I think LA gets a little bit of a bad rap. You hear this a lot when you're on the East Coast. They always say, uh, you know, that there aren't communities of interest in Los Angeles. People would rather be at the beach. Nobody's talking about ideas, right? There aren't salons. And I just, I, so I think it's a little bit of a bad rap. And if you want to know what the evidence is, you look at the way people galvanize around issues, rightly and wrongly. And, and just a question you, we're getting older, right? We're, as a city, yeah, pretty yourself. fast. <laughs> and, and so, you know, when, and yeah. we're becoming more homegrown, shouldn't these problems solve ourselves? Yeah, yeah to some extent. The, yeah. the difference, be, there were 100,000 less children in the uh, uh, 2000 census than the, the, census. the, the excuse me, 2010 than the 2000. So you see, but I do want to give a shout out for people who do run for public office and two people who are out here on the audience who I believe would have won had turnout increased. And that's Mike Wu, who lost in 1993. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and had uh, turnout increased uh, at, at least by 10 to 15 percent. He would, he would have been mayor. And Ana Cubas, who's right here, who I believe would have won their council seat, had uh, a turnout increased about 30, 35 percent. And I'm sure there's several of you who ran for neighborhood councils had turnout increased there. You probably would have been on that neighborhood council. <laughs> All right, let's call it special and do it again. Thank you very much. Please join me in.